0: Recently, I had a a rich conversation with a friend, actually reminiscent of many similar talks over the years. This most recent one was with a man who had immigrated from North Africa to North Texas, and he was explaining to me why he left where he was and why he came here, and he made this very bold statement. Look what he said. He said to me, Wayne, my friend, you don't understand what it is like to live without freedom. I listened to him as he told terrible story after terrible story, and after a bit, after listening to his awful tales of slavery, I, uh, I gave this response. I said to him, I said, I think I have a sense of what you're talking about, although thankfully I have not yet experienced shackles in the political sense that you describe. But, I said to him, as significant as political liberty is, it's not nearly as important as spiritual freedom. And while the latter can inspire the former, it doesn't work the other way around. I went on to say this to my Muslim friend. I said to him, do you know that this is a major issue in the Bible. I said, in fact, there's one whole book of the Bible that is all about the idea of real liberty. Let me show you. Why don't we do what I did with him? Open your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians. Galatians, in your New Testament, our new study today is in Galatians. It's right after the Corinthian letters just before Ephesians. Go to Galatians, and let's read verses 1 through 5. I'll show you what I showed him. Verse 1 of Galatians 1. Paul an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever, Amen. What a beautiful description of the glory of our rescue. Oh, by the way, that's the title in your notes. You got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. Look inside there on the left-hand side. You'll see that headline, the glory of our rescue. And our rescue, our liberty, is glorious. It is grounded in God's very character. Friends, this letter to the Galatians is all about liberty. And in Galatians 1.1, we meet the Lord of liberty. Look, Look at it. Notice the complete unity in the Father and the resurrected Son. Each of them is mentioned in verse 1, and by the way, if you're keeping score at home, the Holy Spirit is also mentioned later in the letter as fully God as well. The letter starts with the persons of God because our freedom is grounded in His character. The Father and the Son bring us grace and peace, and only the Father and Son and Spirit bring us grace and peace. This is especially significant because so many people get caught up in human factors instead. You see, we start to think that a constitution or a government or a job or a spouse or a house or any other thing will guarantee our grace or peace. Or, or, or we become concerned that the opposite candidate or law could eliminate peace or grace in our lives. This is hogwash. No human can take away your grace that comes from God. No human can eliminate your peace unless you let them because your peace comes from God. And while it is fine and even good to oppose certain things and support others, we must remember that grace and peace come from God alone. That's why the triune God is the one who deserves all glory. Read the end of verse 5 with me. Altogether, the end of verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Liberty is grounded in God's very character. That's significant because that means if you have it, you can't lose it. And liberty is founded in substitutionary atonement. That's the first point in verse five, 4, which reads, Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. Jesus gave himself for us. He substituted himself for his people. Uh, John Loman, our pastor to children and families, recently volunteered to give his bone marrow for a friend who's in need. If he's a match, we don't know if he's a match, but if he's a match, that means John is going to go through a very painful procedure that will save his friend's life. That's a little bit like Jesus' substitution for us. And 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 like what, like what Jesus has done, think about John's bone marrow transfusion. That the recipient is gonna have all the cells, right? You do realize they don't they don't organize in the body as John's cells and the other person's. That's not how they work. It's all together. In the same way, Jesus' blood cleanses us from sin and makes us possessors of an altogether internal health that cannot be separated or removed. As you see from the new banner in our four-year, our annual vision this year, our vision is to reform our lives and reform our church on God's word. 500 years ago when the Great Reformation began, those Christians, they were very much concerned with the same thing. And they talked a great deal about liberty, about the liberty that each Christian has because of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Look, look what John Calvin, the great theologian Calvin said about this. Our Lord came forth as a true man and took the person and the name of Adam in order to take Adam's place in obeying the Father. To present our flesh as the price of satisfaction to God's righteous judgment. And in the same flesh, to pay the penalty that we had deserved. Calvin goes on to develop this idea. This is all from Galatians 1.4. Look what he says. By his obedience, however, Christ tr- truly acquired and merited grace for us with his Father. If Christ has made satisfaction for our sins, if he paid the penalty owed by us, if he appeased God by his obedience, in short... If as a righteous man he suffered for unrighteous men, then he acquired salvation for us by his righteousness, which is tantamount to deserving it. Close quote. Look at what Calvin's saying. He's saying that people who trust Jesus have real freedom because we deserve it. We merit freedom. Not because of anything in us. Not because of anything in us, but because of everything in Jesus. Because he substituted himself for us. Theologian Derek Rishmawi puts it this way, Jesus not only takes away the negative condemnation standing against us, but he merits a positive grace and salvation, not for his own sake, but for ours. Close quote. We're free of the deserved negatives. We are inheritors of undeserved positives, all because Jesus died on the cross in our place and rose from the grave. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. This is liberty, and it stands in opposition to the age. Look at the next phrase in verse 4. Next phrase in the Greek is, en enistami per, uh, poneros, this present evil age. That's a great translation, but let's, let's look a little further. Lots of Bible scholars through the centuries, not a majority, but lots of them, have taken this to mean only Paul's era. All right? They assume that, that Paul means, at his time of writing, the evil age that, that, that was the beginning of the persecutions against the Christians. And that could be what's intended. However, enistami, in the word we rightly translate, present, is used in a much longer-term sense in the books that Paul would have read in Greek, including the books of the Maccabees. In fact, it usually meant a long season or epic. Given how Paul writes in other books about the times of the Gentiles as a long era, I think he means this present age is an evil time that stretches from then to now and beyond until Jesus returns. And please notice that Jesus' rescue is the main focus here, not the times. Paul is a proud Roman citizen. We know that. He is very proud of his Roman citizenship. Don't you think that he is very likely aching over his country, over the collapse of the republic and the rise of this new empire system? The empire lacks freedom. It it lacks the freedom of the old republic. It It is ripe for bureaucratic abuse, especially abuse of Christians. I trust you note the parallels to our own days. But none of that matters. None of that matters because Jesus rescues. He brings real freedom no matter how ugly the empire gets. All times are evil on this broken earth. All people are naturally shackled with sin. But Christian liberty stands up to that evil, right? Christian freedom is not bound. It stands in opposition to the ill liberty of the age as it has for 2,000 years in every age. Amen. Liberty. Is God's will. Final point in verse 4. Liberty is the Father's will. Notice the purposeful verbiage. God's not just creator, judge, almighty. He is Father to all those who trust Jesus. How many of you are parents? Raise your hands. Raise your hands if you parents. Really high. Keep them up. Raise them up. Keep them up. All right. Keep your hand up if your desire as a parent is for your child to be trapped in some addiction or terrible sin. Keep your hand up if your goal for your child is to be imprisoned. You want your child to be imprisoned. Okay. No hands. All right. Friends, think if sinful parents like us want freedom for our kids, what do you think the perfect heavenly father wants for the people that he rescues? For the people that he adopts into his heavenly family? He rescues them for freedom. That's his will. Now, please don't misunderstand. The freedom that God has purchased is intended to be enjoyed according to his full revealed will in the Bible. A member of our pulpit team wrote me a wonderful reminder about this message. Look what he said. He said, Wayne, the purpose of our liberty, he said, Wayne, remember to tell everybody, the purpose of our liberty is, quote from Galatians 1, 20, uh, 2.19, so that I might live to God. Liberty is not lawlessness. Liberty is life as it was envisioned by God. Freedom within the safety of God's revealed boundaries, close quote. Now, with all that in mind, Look at the whole of verses one and two, and let's meet the speakers of liberty. We learn a little bit about what liberty is, about our rescue. Here's who's speaking it. Verses one and two. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Liberty has human champions, and there, there has never been a more dedicated champion of freedom than the Apostle Paul. It is God's will that matters. You see that? What other humans think has no bearing. Paul is an apostle. By the way, that's not a spiritual gift. This is different. This is the office of apostle. That means somebody who saw the resurrected Christ and was commissioned by him to start his churches. That office is closed. Anybody tells you they're an apostle, don't pass go, don't collect $200, don't talk with them, okay? But Paul is an apostle and his apostleship is not up for a popularity contest. You know what Paul's going to do? He's going to stand up for the lofty goal of the spiritual freedom that God wills, and he doesn't really give a rip who stands in his way. 1,500 years ago, a brilliant preacher in Constantinople named John, uh, he summarized verses 1 and 2 this way. John wrote this. The exordium, little Latin here, exordium is the beginning of a Roman argument. Okay, so that's what verses 1 and 2 are in your Bible. That's an exordium. The exordium is full of a vehement and lofty spirit. And not the exordium only, but also, so to speak, the whole epistle, close quote. Now, I read that, and I thought, vehement and lofty, that's it. Man, that's well said. By the way, you can understand why Pastor John got the nickname Chrysostom, which means golden mouth in Greek, right? <laughs> He's right. Paul is vehement about the lofty idea of freedom. Of course, verse 2 says, other Christian leaders are with Paul in this communication. Oh, speaking of communication... We should note some important cultural context here. Uh, listen, first century letters have, have certain norms that we should know if we're going to understand them. By the way, 2,000 years from now, if Jesus doesn't return, they'll be saying the same thing about your time. These things they sent called texts, there were certain norms you used when you sent texts. It's true. Emails, they'll say. Those email things is what they called them. There were certain forms you always used. It's true, we all develop forms. So, here's the forms that were part of every first century letter. When you were starting a letter to someone, you had four things you did you greeted them, you gave the names of the authors or a name of the author, you gave a thanksgiving for the participant, for the recipients of the letter, and then a prayer or a blessing, depending on the kind of letter. Okay? Greeting, authors, thanksgiving, prayer. Now, look at, look at your text, look at the start of the Galatians letter. One of those three things is missing in your letter. Which one's missing? Something's missing. One of them's gone. Look at your text. Which one's gone? Thanksgiving. Paul doesn't even pretend to give thanks for these brethren because he's too mad. He is vehement and lofty. We're going to see that these foolish Galatians, they have jettisoned their Christian freedom for the competing burdens of legalism and license. And Paul loves them so much that he is furious about it he is really angry because he loves them (coughs) speaking of the recipients let's quickly get to know a bit about the Galatians the Galatians need liberty Um, in, in this week's all the difference newsletter if you receive that if you don't you can write something on your bulletin when you put that flap in and we'll we'll sign you up uh, I'm going to give you a whole lot more background that will help you understand the Galatian churches more. In short, they lived in Asia Minor, they lived here, and, and they went through a dizzying array of influences over the years that, that are important to understand the letter. For today, let's just pick up the story where Rome has absorbed the whole of Asia Minor. Okay, The Roman Empire has absorbed all of Asia Minor. Got that? You know what Rome did? They decided to do a little bureaucratic move that has confused historians for centuries. All right? They took all of Asia Minor, and they kind of took some existing, moder- existing provinces, and then they took this one massive province, and they called the whole thing Galatia, and it was completely weird. It was, like, it was like Czechoslovakia when I was a kid. It's a bunch of peoples put together that don't belong together. You see, Galatia had a bunch of people way up here in the north, and they were Celts, uh, Gauls, and these were people who were ethnic Galatians. That's why it was called Galatia, but Galatia. They had almost nothing in common with these people who were down south here who were more Phrygian, uh, typical wealthy Gentile people. A lot of Jews, by the way, in South Galatia because one of Alexander the Great's generals opened up that area to Jewish settlements. So a lot of Jews down there. So when you were reading any letter in, from the first century B.C. on and an author mentioned Galatia, you had to look at the context to figure out does he mean ethnic Galatia or does he mean political Galatia? I think... There's no way to know for sure. I think Paul's talking to political Galatia. Speaking of Romans, the Roman impact on our letter is is quite significant. Look at this quote. This is from the great historian Adrian Goldsworthy. Love his stuff. Uh, Goldsworthy says this. Augustus had formed an entire legion, 22 Diotariana, from Galatian soldiers, and the province was considered to provide high-quality recruits. Here's the part that matters to you. Interestingly enough, this levy, to bring the legions up to strength, occurred at about the time of the Apostle Paul's missionary journey through Galatia. And his later letter to the Galatian churches contains a striking amount of martial vocabulary and imagery. Close quote. Paul's travels there set the stage for our letter, and they may have, included, they may have influenced empire service. I told you he was a very proud Roman. Look, look up here. You can see the route that Paul took. He began in Antioch of Syria, traveled across Cyprus, went through Pamphylia to Antioch of Pisidia, and then to these Galatian cities, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. These are people he knows. These are churches he planted, and he loves them. He loves them enough to be vehemently lofty about their stupidity in abandoning grace. Paul writes this letter to rescue Christians from the curse of life without freedom. By the way, that's the headline on the right side of your notes. The curse of life without freedom. It's the point in verses 6 through 9. Let's read verses 6 through 9. I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from Him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to change the good news about the Messiah. But, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we said before, I now say again. If anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. Heresy destroys freedom. That's Paul's major idea in verses 6 and 7. There is no other gospel, but when people distort God's good news of grace, liberty is always lost. Always. Here's something fascinates me about verses 6 and 7. Paul had a number of words he could have used for negative change. See change in verse 7? See that word? It's the Greek word metastrepho. Now, why choose this term? Because metastrepho means a complete switch, right? No other Greek word is as graphic. Look, Dr. Vines writes in his dictionary, metastrepho is to transform into something of a completely opposite character. Meta, signifying change, strepho, Judaizers sought to pervert the gospel of Christ, Galatians 1.7. Acts chapter 2, you can look up on your own, uses the exact same term for the sun being turned to complete darkness. James chapter 4 uses metastrepho to describe laughter that is turned immediately into mourning. There is no such thing as a little legalism. Anything less than justification before God by His grace alone is metastrepho. It is darkness with no sunshine. I need a volunteer. Somebody raise your hand. I need a volunteer. Come on up. Come on up. You're you're chosen. All right, come here. Tell everybody your name. That's right. You're Grayson. All right, Grayson, come over here with me. We're going to walk over here. I have a question for you. All right? underneath, uh, you know, because you go to church here, underneath there, if you guys don't, there's a baptistry under there, and there's a, a wet well and a dry well, and they're underneath the stage, totally dark, little cramped space down there, right? Okay. Here's what I'd like to know. Can I tie you up very tightly and lift those up and throw your body down in that dark space and trap you down in that darkness? Please say no. Please say no. <laughs> no. Good. All right. Great. You say no? All right. Good. She says no. I cannot tie her up and throw her into darkness. Give her a hand, please. Would you? That's great. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, let me ask those of you who are wise and experienced people, do the forces of legalism ever ask that honestly? Do they right at the beginning say, you know what, let me tell you where this is going to go. I'm going to take all of your liberty in Christ, and I'm going to tie you up, and I'm going to throw you into darkness. Do they do that? Are they that honest up front? Yes or no? No, they most certainly are not. They pretend to be helping you when all they are doing is locking you up. You know what they really do? They make you sick. Look look at the inflammatory note I wrote in your notes there. Changing the good news brings spiritual diarrhea. Now, here's why I say that. Paul uses the word tarasso in verse 7. Now, we translate it troubling, and that's a great rendering. These anti-grace people are troubling the Galatians. But there is more to that word. Hippocrates, the great Greek father of medicine. Hippocrates used that word tarasso to describe intestinal disorders, particularly to describe what happens in horrific diseases like dysentery. That's his word for that. Paul's very close friend and traveling partner at this time is a great Gentile physician named Luke. Seems very likely to me that Paul chose this medical term on purpose. You you see, we read verse 7 and we think, oh, that's a little troubling. There's nothing little about it. Paul says this false doctrine is making your church horribly ill. It's messy and it stinks. It stinks. Listen, here's a letter I received from a young woman. Wayne, grace is so amazing, she wrote. It is the single most important ingredient in bringing health to my life. She says, all through my life, I was sick and didn't know it. I was convinced that I must achieve personal perfection in order to make people and God love me. I obsessed about trying harder and harder, and it was killing me. Close quote. She goes on to describe the healthy life that she has found in God's grace alone. That's what Paul wants for the Galatians. That's what God wants for every one of us. Paul is graphically describing darkness without freedom and, and the sickness of life that ignores the glory of our rescue. That's emphasized further in verses 8 and 9. Look, twice God's word tells us curses come to gospel twisters. Curses. The Greek word is anathema. It came into our language as anathema. It's translated curse in my Bible. Now, this is a term that only appears five times in the whole Bible. All right? Three of the other four times. Clearly, obviously, are describing temporal punishment, an earthly spanking. Every single use of anathema in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is describing earthly chastisement, including physical death. Therefore, anathema describes an earthly correction. It is not talking about eternal damnation. Sadly, some Bible translators say eternally condemned or damned to hell here in this text. But I have to say, they're just pushing their own agenda that the text does not support. In chapter 2, we're going to find out why it is so important not to overstate anathema. The Christian who gets confused about grace does not lose his justification before God. However, he or she will get a needed smackdown from the Father here on earth. So is anathema no big deal then? Hardly. Did you hear what I just said? This is a physical life or death issue. This is very serious. It's even used twice for emphasis. Pastor Tim Keller describes how this curse plays itself out. Look what he says. In some churches, it is implicitly or explicitly taught that you're saved through your surrender to Christ plus right beliefs and behavior. This sounds very biblical, but it can still reject the grace-first principle fairly easily. People think that we are justified by a strong belief and trust in and love for God along with a life committed to Him. That, my friends, is not being saved by grace. Now listen, 10 describes the attendant curse that goes along with this. Look, therefore, they feel they must begin by generating a high degree of spiritual sorrow, hunger, and love in order to get Christ's presence. Then they must maintain this if they're going to stay saved. Close quote. Yikes. Now I know there are other ways this curse plays itself out, but goodness, what a beating that is. Trying to always be good enough for God, which is impossible. What a curse to never be secure in your justification. Now, outwardly, that kind of life may look holy. Inside, it has to be a tumult worthy of Hippocrates' Tarasso. And, friends, this is a clear and present danger. Verse 9 in the Greek actually reads is preaching. For our language, it best fits to say preaches, that's fine, but the text is written in Greek as a first-class condition with a present tense verb. That that means that this is assumed to be the case right now. This problem is happening now. Our friends Mark and Lynn were at our house uh, when Lynn was very close to the expected delivery date of their third child. We were having a great night. Uh... My two kids and, and their, other, their two older kids uh, and moms and dads, we were all watching a movie. Really good movie. We are all really absorbed in the movie. All of a sudden during the movie, Lynn looks up and she looks over at her husband and she goes, whoa, I'm having contractions. We need to go to the hospital. And Mark, into the movie, Mark looks at her and he says this famous line, not yet. L- let me know when it really hurts. <laughs> she, she gave him a world-class glare. And then she said, it really hurts now. They went to the hospital, and in really very quick time, they were blessed with a wonderful gift from God, their third child, whom I just saw the other day. Yes, sounded just like that. That was amazing. We'll need to talk later about you pinching your child just for emphasis, but it, it will sound great on the audio. That's nice. Paul says, turn off that silly movie that the false teachers are playing and get to God's hospital now. Bad things happen if you pretend that everything's okay. By contrast, respond to God's and You know what you get? You get to enjoy a great gift of life. All right, on that note, let's wrap up this thought section. Let, let's read verses 8 through 10. And, and while we're reading it, why don't you, let, let's write some textual takeaways on our hearts. Okay, let, verse 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel other than that which we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we said before, I now say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to win the favor of people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. Verses 8 and 9 um, reveal our first big takeaway. Check with the whole text you've received. Look, look at what Paul does. He rightly includes even himself. Do you see that? Includes even himself among those who could one day erode the gospel of grace. This generally happens in one of two ways in churches, okay? One is the problem that Tim Keller described where, where teachers begin to add on to grace, right? They say you're not justified by faith alone in Jesus alone, no, no, no. They, they say real faith, that's usually the phrase they like, genuine faith is shown through good works, and, by the way, it's always funny. They always change which good works they choose to emphasize in different eras and, and different places. But it's not grace alone through faith alone and Jesus alone. The other erosion happens in more what we call liberal situations where one is told it doesn't really matter what you believe. All roads lead to heaven. Now, of course, that's not the gospel that Paul preaches. It sounds kind. It sounds accepting. But this actually brings a terrible curse. Every few years we see some Christian leader fall into one side or the other of these gospel-twisting heresies. Paul says it doesn't matter who it is, if it's Rob Bell, the angel Moroni, or me. If what you are told doesn't agree with the scriptural doctrine of grace, run. Do not pass go. Don't collect $200, right? Flee that crap. Can I say that in public? Flee that and send that false teacher straight to jail where he belongs, When Paul was in Greece, he visited a city called Berea. The Bereans heard the good news of grace at their synagogue, and Luke describes their response to Jesus this way. Look, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Close quote. Why does he say they're more noble? Because they don't just listen to Paul. They examine the Old Testament in depth to make sure he's correct. Brilliant. This is part of what God means in other passages where he tells us to take every thought captive or test the spirits. We must check every new idea, not not just with logic, but with the whole counsel of God. Thank goodness we always do that. Frisco Bible Church, always, everyone in this church always takes every thought captive, and we take it all, and we check it against the Scripture every single thing all the time, right? No. We don't. So to help us think this through, I've developed a little assessment for you. I think this will help us ascertain how well we understand God's word about liberty in Christ. I want to give you a little 10-question assessment. Please, write down your answer. It's easy, just T or F, true or false. Do it in the margin of your notes. You've got room. Oh, by the way, I need to give credit. A number of these questions were taken from the late, great Jerry Bridges, from his writings, especially his wonderful book, Transforming Grace, which I highly recommend. All right, here we go. Question number one, true or false? If I oversleep and do not read the Bible in the morning, I expect God to give me a worse day. True or false? What do you expect? Number two, God doesn't care what I do. All my sins are forgiven, so I can do whatever I want with no consequences, eternal or temporal. No consequences. True or false? Number three, write it down. Having believed and received justification, salvation that makes me right with God. I must keep doing my part or I will lose that justification. True or false? Number four, if you or your views are unpopular, it stands to reason that you're wrong. De facto, you must be wrong. Number five, the impact on my quality of life must be considered first before choosing to obey any command from God. Must consider What it's going to do to me before I worry about whether to obey God. Number six. True or false. If I forget to pray forgiveness for a sin, God does not forgive that sin. Number seven. There are certain rites, such as baptism, without being tied up, baptism that must be performed for one to go to heaven. In order to get to heaven, there are certain rites that must be performed. True or false. Number eight. It doesn't matter what the Bible says as long as we all just get along, right? We all just get along. That's what matters more than what the Bible says. Number nine, there are no real threats to spiritual slavery in modern churches. I mean, that was for then, but that really doesn't apply now. True or false, number ten, if you perform well, you will be more loved by God than if you perform poorly. True or false? Some of you probably know. The same answer was the correct answer on every one. What was the correct answer on every one? False. False. Those were all false. Over the coming days, we're going to see each of those questions explained and answered in Galatians. I look forward to that with you. For example, look at question number four. That was answered in verses 1 and 10, wasn't it? The cultural norm, whether it's the church, culture, or society, doesn't de facto determine what's right. God's word alone does stand on the word. That leads us to our second takeaway. Second takeaway. Be concerned only with God's opinion. Look at those bookends, verses 1 and 10. They repeat the same big idea. They hold the section together as an inclusio. The the fancy Latin term for this is inclusio. It's where you have a big idea and then another big idea, and it holds the whole thought together. All right? Look at the big idea. The big idea is a slave only cares about his master's opinion. Paul's not commissioned by a church, although he respects and submits to church authorities. Paul doesn't work for people, although he loves and serves people. Paul is an apostle and a slave by God's commission, and he doesn't forget who his real leader and his real authority are because Paul recognizes God's authority as primary and ultimate. He can and will do whatever God commands. That's why he calls himself doulos. Look at that. See that? Guys, if you're going to understand the New Testament, you must understand this word doulos. Very significant word. It's often translated as servant or bond slave. It, it's, it means somebody who willingly enslaves himself to a leader. It, it's hard for us to grasp today. It's not just a servant. This is someone who enslaves themselves to a leader for a purpose. In the Roman world, dulos had standing. Do you know a doulos in the Roman world could buy and sell and run a business in the master's name? Never had to see the master's signature. Just the doulos would do. In fact, doulos were very, very highly respected because they must have had some amazing master, so went the Roman line of thought, for somebody to bond themselves to that master and do what the master said. A person like that only cared what the master said and was blessed to follow his instructions. I I think doulos is very nicely captured in the lyrics of Stephen Curtis Chapman's song, Whatever. Uh, look, Look what he wrote. I made a list. Wrote it down from A to Z. All the ways I thought you could best use me. Told all my strengths and my abilities. I formed a plan, seemed to make good sense. I laid it out for you so you'd be convinced. I made my case, presented my defense, but then I read the letter that you sent me. And it said that all you really want from me is whatever. Whatever you say, whatever, I will obey, whatever. Lord, have your way because you are my God, whatever. Whatever. We follow God, whatever, concerned only with His opinion. All God's people said? Takeaway number three, learn to spot phantom pain. If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, and you later feel or hear something that makes you doubt your justification, listen, that's phantom pain. Our church missionary, Dan Bolin, explained this in a recent letter. Really good. Dan's uh, fresh bread had this note. Look. He says, I recently spoke with a man who lost an arm in a violent, painful, work-related accident. He manages very well physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I was inspired by, his, by the courage, strength, and grace he displayed in every area of his life. The biggest problem he faces is phantom pain. He's tormented daily by piercing, debilitating aches that at times overwhelm him, signals seemingly flowing from the missing arm, race to his brain, delivering a message that is excruciating but unreal. There's no longer an arm, but the pain he feels is authentic. Dan says, when Jesus removes our sin and washes away the guilt of our past, we may still experience phantom pain. We may feel the phantom guilt of our sin continuing to condemn us, even though the penalty of our sin has been removed from our lives. Paul reminded his audiences, himself and us, that because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, substitutionary atonement, right? Sin's condemnation is phantom pain. Paul said, Romans 8:1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't let the sin that God has removed continue to condemn you. Close quote. Guys, next time you feel phantom pain, remind yourself of Galatians 1. Remind yourself of this truth, that we who believe in Jesus have grace and peace from God that cannot be taken away. We are rescued by Jesus, and nothing can change that. All God's people said? That takes us to our final thing to remember. Fourth takeaway. We should know that God's freedom reforms the world. Friends, the message of this book changes everything. Listen, my old teacher, Dr. Campbell, Don Campbell, wrote this. In the early church, as the separation between Judaism and Christianity was taking place, the letter to the Galatians no doubt helped clarify that cleavage. Centuries later, it played such a key role in the Reformation, it was called the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. The profound influence of this small epistle continues. It is indeed the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, proclaiming to modern generations that salvation from the penalty and power of sin comes not by works, but by grace through faith in God's provision. Close quote. That's why you and I are working through Galatians. Look at our premise for this series. This is, this is why we're studying this. We struggle with freedom. We do. You do. I know you do. I watch you all the time. So do I. We lack it in our daily lives, and not really because of external factors. Perfectionism, legalism, selfishness enslave our hearts. And when we do battle these slavers, our souls often jump into equally entrapping nonsense like licentiousness, idolatry, or hypocrisy. We desperately need to know how to live as God's freed people. Galatians was given expressly to meet that need by teaching us how to keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray about that. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray... I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will check your text, whatever we hear. That we will be concerned only with your opinion. That we will spot phantom pain for what it is. And Lord, I pray maybe most of all that we will enjoy seeing your liberty reform the world. That you will use us to share the good news of Jesus' substitutionary atonement and the freedom that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. that changes everything. In Jesus' name, amen.